Hi, Linda. Hi, Serge. So we're going to be talking about applying mindfulness to eating. Yes, and I'm very grateful to have this opportunity to speak about that. Um, you, you probably know that my uh, colleague Karen Carnabucci and I wrote a book a few years ago called Healing uh, Eating Disorders with Psychodrama and Other Action Methods. And in the process of writing that book, we really took a look at um, many, many different elements, as you can imagine, and we were observing in our process of collaboration the um, the great number of, um, I guess you would say, um, media bombardment about dieting and the process of dieting and diet foods and diet programs and um, all of that. And, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, um, you know, we took a look at in our process. But, you know, we came to the conclusion um, in our work uh, with clients as well as just in our overview as we prepared to write the book that mindfulness is really the key piece that, you know, we know we have all of this data that tell us that diets don't work, that people often will try to lose weight and then they'll gain it back and more, or they will develop a very distorted body image, or they'll develop a negative um, kind of feeling toward their body, um, almost like an adversarial relationship to the body. And so, you know, we notice that there are all of these um, negative consequences to that and that bringing mindfulness to the process of eating doesn't have anything to do with dieting or any of that. It has to do with bringing oneself fully present into the moment and into the process of choosing food, eating food, enjoying food, and being really nourished by food. Mm-hmm. So, so there, and, is I mean, a, there is a, a relational element to, you're, you're pointing out that traditionally uh, in our culture, the relationship we have to uh, eating, eating too much, problems with eating, is to turn it into an adversarial relationship, either vis-a-vis food or vis-a-vis parts of ourselves or um, yes. a sense of uh, who we are, uh, and struggle and fight. And here... Uh, in contrast to that, it is actually um, being very present with what we're doing. Exactly right. And again, that mindfulness, um, the mindfulness role, as we say in the field of psychodrama, has no judgment and has compassion and simply observes and accurately labels. And so that automatically takes that adversarial component right out of the relationship. But, you know, I like also a very strong connotation that it has to me when you describe it as saying the, that mindfulness role that my, um, is by describing it as a role. Uh, it's also not everything. And usually when you talk to somebody who is very self-critical, for instance, about bad habits, and um, mm-hmm. it's hard for people to be compassionate uh, yes. because they feel that what they're doing is hurting them, 
so they want to be very critical of it as if otherwise they were uh you know just basically enabling the bad part exactly uh, but when you're talking about this being just a, being a role uh it probably is easier to talk about exploring the compassionate role as opposed to just having blind you know the the fear of people is that they're encouraged to totally not control something that they're afraid of. Exactly right. And so, um, yes, and I, I loved, um, by the way, your um, the uh, short piece that you had with uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz um, on internal family systems, and he talked about, you know, looking at the fear that way. Like if we looked at the fear as a part of ourself that really needed um, to be understood, and to be cared for the way a parent would care for a child. You know, this has a similar flavor, um, if you will, um, since we're talking about eating. It has a similar flavor mm-hmm. of, you know, bringing that kind of compassion, um, you know, to the process. And if it's okay, I'd like to describe mm-hmm. uh, an, an exercise that I did with a, a good uh, friend and colleague of mine who's a social worker and also a psychodramatist, um, up in Maine, and um, I went up and joined her uh, once for a, a few days uh, wellness workshop, of which mindful eating was a, a large component. And so we reserved a, a place um, at a local restaurant, and they were kind enough to put um, one of those beautiful screens up and you know give us privacy. And there were about ten people in the workshop, and um, so I just would like to sort of say step by step. Mm-hmm. Uh, the process that we use to guide uh, the participants in the process of applying mindfulness to eating. So the first thing when we arrived is, of course, everyone took their seats. And I just ask everyone to put all four corners of both feet on the floor and take a big, deep breath and feel the support of the chair under them and the back of the chair behind them and to take another deep breath and to just let themselves take in the visual surrounding, to have them notice what was around them, the the beautiful screen that the uh, restaurant folks had put up for us, uh, the color of the tablecloth, um, whether there was sunlight coming in the window or not, you know, any colors they noticed in the room, any smells, because, of course, that's very connected to our sense of taste as our, as our sense of smell. And uh, what did they smell and what did they notice about that? And then I asked them to just take their time looking at the menu. And as they were doing so, I asked them to notice what their body signals were telling them about their level of hunger. So I I want to just interrupt for a moment that uh, uh, what feels very nice about what you said and the way you said it is um, you could have uh, summarized it and saying helped people to be present or asked people to be present. But you listed all kinds of specifics, including 
you know, the feet on the floor and feeling all four corners of the feet and looking around and paying attention to smells and so on and so forth. So uh, what you're highlighting and what I'm, uh, you know, emphasizing is that sense that being present is a process, that yes. you cannot just have the shortcut of saying, okay, so I'm going to be present and just, you know, assume that by simply saying, okay, I'm going to be present, you're going to be present. It takes, right. you know, it takes it, a little... Exactly, that's a very good point. That's a very, very good point. And I think also um, there is some misconception about, you know, I should just be able to kind of blink my eyes or close my eyes and automatically be present, or I should just be able to take a deep breath and automatically be present, when I think it really, for most of us anyway, is a process that we lead ourselves into, that state of being, and that's really what I was trying to illustrate, and thank you for summarizing it and labeling it so accurately. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it was very beautiful because I had a sense, as you're describing it, that there's a, it's a process, it's a transition. You know, you cannot abruptly change from one state to another. Uh, there's going to be, uh, you know, just in a, in a way to stay with the restaurant analogy, in winter, uh, in the northeast, they have these vestibules at the entrance of restaurant. You have an extra door, uh, yeah. so to make a transition between the very cold air inside and the warm air, in, uh, the very cold air outside and the warm air inside. And so right. that you need, we need that transition. Exactly right. Yes, that's a really good analogy. Thank you for that. So the next step is about noticing hunger. And hunger is a physical sensation. It's the body saying, basically, do I need to be fed or do I not need to be fed? Do I need food now or not? And I, I compare it to the gauge on a gas tank. So basically, if your hunger level is saying something like zero on the gas tank, meaning there's nothing in there, you're on empty, um, or as I like to um, say playfully, feed me now or die, <laughs> I'm ravenous totally ravenous, and 10 is, uh, you better stop feeding me now because the gas tank is overflowing. <laughs> and so to kind of notice on that scale of 1 to 10, how hungry are you? And, you know, I suggest to folks that they not let themselves get hungrier than 3.5 or 4, and try to notice when they get just nicely satisfied but not overly full, which might be like something like seven or seven and a half. And that's okay. Like I've, I've got plenty, you know, and I can always get more when I'm hungry again. So I ask them at the beginning before they've even ordered their food to check in and notice and say where their hunger level is. And then I ask them to notice what looks appealing to them on the menu and what about it appeals to them and what is it appealing to. Um, so, for example, if they read on the menu uh, the description of a dish that sounds warm and creamy and sort of semi-soft, you know, is how is that different from another dish that might be chewy and spicy and or another dish like a salad, for example, that might be cold and crunchy or 
another dish that might be um, more liquid and steamy, like soup or stew, for example. And what is it about the particular dish that is appealing to them? Is it appealing to what their taste buds are wanting in terms of a particular flavor, like sweet or salty or pungent or spicy or bitter? Um, Is it appealing to something that they think might look beautiful? Is it appealing to, um, you know, their sense of temperature? Like is it a hot day out in the summer and maybe a cup of cold gazpacho soup sounds really nice because they're feeling so warm? Or the opposite, maybe it's that cold winter day and, you know, maybe something very warm and have something that may have a little weight to it um, sounds nice in the wintertime. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so I asked them to just notice what is it about the thing that's calling them, so to speak, from the menu? What is it about that particular dish that is appealing to them and how is it? You know, is it appealing to what part of them? Mm-hmm. What sense? And then... Um, you know, as the uh, meal progresses and the, you know, the so various... Let me just uh, comment a little bit. So, sure. uh, so, so what I'm hearing is, um, again, uh, introducing something that breaks the automatic pilot at a couple of different levels. One is to actually, before um, the automatic pilot of it's time to eat, so I eat whatever, you know, is uh, thinking about how hungry am I? Um, and installing that capacity to uh, observe, uh, including observe when I'm too full. Right. And uh, also the capacity to pay a little bit more attention to specifically um, that sense of what uh, is attractive uh, and to what is it that it's satisfying. So Exactly. So some kind of, there's already that that question of dialogue that's going on here. Exactly right. Yes, exactly right. And so um, when the food is delivered, I ask them uh, to make a practice of putting their fork down between bites and to, um, in that process of putting the fork down between bites, to chew each bite at least ten times before they swallow and to notice as they are chewing the taste, the texture, the flavors, the temperature, you know, the things that we recently spoke of and um, to just observe those, you know, without, you know, just with sort of that sense of curiosity that the witness has. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like I w- maybe they might notice something like, oh, I wasn't expecting um, a salty flavor in this dish, but there it is. Or, hmm, I wasn't expecting something um, crunchy, but I noticed there is a little something crunchy in this dish, or whatever it is that they notice, just noticing it mm-hmm, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. they go through. And then checking in, um, I would ask them to check in about a third of the way through the meal in terms of their hunger and fullness level. And uh, again, at about two-thirds through. 
and um, you know, ask them then if if any. Sometimes people at two thirds through are already at seventy percent full, and but you know, they they may not have noticed that before, and so they may decide, you know, and of course it's always their choice. They can decide to keep eating, or they can decide, oh, I think I really have had enough, and so as the meal finished, you know, and I ask people to check in for a final time and then to reveal if they wouldn't mind sharing um, what the process was like for them and, you know, to speak. Hold on, let me just, again, uh, comment on what you just described. Yeah, so, again, uh, very beautifully described. Um, It's not just a question of telling people being present or pay attention or be curious um, and you show that, uh, for instance, you know, during the meal, there's moments at one-third, two-third, where you're asking, pay attention to, you know, how full you are. So unless there is a moment that's made for that, it won't happen. Right. And, uh, you know... Because we're on automatic pilot. It's going to go on automatic pilot. And, and uh, you know, any of us who've tried to do something mindfully like this know how actually difficult it is to break the automatic pilot in these moments that are so automatic because we do them several times a day and we've done them all our life. So, um, uh, you know, especially when you describe... Uh, you know, that sense of paying attention to the texture, the flavor of food, uh, you know. And um, if you just said that, uh, you know, you also say, you know, chew at least ten times, uh, put your fork down. So there is a sense of in the intentionality of interrupting the uh, non-stop, you know, automatic continuing in order to create that pause where it will become possible to notice something. Exactly. And, again, it's that beautiful phrase you created, the active pause, you know, the action of putting the fork down or using one's napkin or taking a little sip of water, taking a deep breath. You know, all of those are actions that create a pause in the automatic process. And so, um, you know, that's that's just, you know, crucial to being able to bring mindfulness to the process of eating. And then the process needs to continue following the meal because I would then ask people during the course of the workshop when we were back in our regular workshop space, did they notice anything about um, their energy level? So, in other words, did people notice a sense of heaviness or sleepiness in the hour following lunch? Or did they feel a restoration and renewal of their energy in the hour following lunch? Did they notice that they were still comfortably, um, you know, feeling satisfied an hour after lunch? Um, And then checking in again at two hours or three hours after lunch to see, you know, what effect their choices had on the energy system of the body. You know, did they notice that they were thinking clearly or did they feel foggy-headed? Did they notice that they really wanted to lay down and take a nap? And then I would do some education around um, exploring what the food choices were or how far into the hunger and fullness scale they may have eaten 
And was there a connection between that and feeling sleepy or sluggish or the reverse, a connection between what they may have chosen and feeling very clear and very um, full of energy? Because we know, for example, that you know, some of us have different responses to different food groups than others. You know, some people, for example, um, you know, may have a sensitivity to carbohydrates and it may make them sleepy, but they might not be aware of that. They may not know that until they actually bring mindfulness to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this um, experience myself many years ago. I was teaching uh, a college course in communication and so my class was three, one class three hours in the morning and the other class three hours in the afternoon. And um, I had an hour break in the middle for lunch. And at that time, I would bring my lunch and I would have, um, I would have tuna and maybe some whole grain crackers and some raw vegetables and maybe a piece of fruit and, um, you know, some water, some tea. And I noticed that in my afternoon class, I was so sleepy that when I listened to my students, um, you know, presenting their uh, communication assignment, whatever that was, I was actually literally trying to hold my eyelids open because I felt like I had been drugged. And I realized that it was the combination of the tuna and the starches in my lunch were making me really, really sleepy. I was getting like a big, um, I think I got a big infusion of serotonin and not much of the, of the wake-up brain chemistry from my lunch. And when I changed my lunch and, um, you know, made it more like uh, protein and some watery, more watery um, vegetables than starchy ones, um, you know, I was perfectly full, but I was very clear and, um, you know, wasn't sleepy at all. But, you know, until I brought mindfulness and curiosity to the process, you know, I was sort of stuck with forcing myself to stay awake for my afternoon students, which certainly wasn't fair to them. Mm-hmm. So I was very relieved when I was able to bring the process of mindfulness to and curiosity, like what is it about my lunch that's making me so sleepy? And I learned to experiment, you know, with different food combinations to find what worked for me in terms of giving me energy and mental clarity. And so that's really what I was trying to help my workshop participants do um, over the course of that wellness weekend by noticing their energy level and their um, sort of feeling of aliveness in the afternoon um, or their need to take a nap. And could it possibly have a connection to the food choices that they made mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to just be curious about that and then bring that mindfulness into all of their meal selection. And I like to call it becoming your own detective, mm-hmm. that the mindful witness helps you to be your own detective, mm-hmm. being that observer and noticing and putting together the pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. And that way people learn to be very tuned in to their body and their energy system and to make choices that are based on 
how is my body responding and how can I make choices that make me feel good in my body? Yeah, yeah. So, so um, that mindful eating doesn't stop um, when the meal is over. Uh, right. There is that sense of paying attention to what happens afterwards and making the connections. Exactly right. Exactly right. And getting curious. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I know now that there are certain uh, food combinations that give me very long-term sustained energy, both mentally and physically, and, you know, I can depend on them. And, you know, so food combinations that I know may make me a little bit sleepy, like I save those for nights when I don't have to be anything but sleepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I can be mindful about my choices and and also it takes all of the, um, as we said earlier, that adversarial relationship, you know, out of our food choices because we become mindful of what it is the body really needs. What does the body need? What does the brain need? Um you know, to feel good. And then when we make choices that help the body and the brain feel good, we feel good about ourselves because we do have this kind of um, then um, intuitive, what becomes an, an almost intuitive awareness of what choices are going to be most um, in concert with what our body needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this seems like a good place to end, or do you want to add something else to this? I think it feels like a good place to end. Just I loved your point that mindful eating doesn't stop with the meal, <laughs> that you know, it's really bringing that mindfulness um, into noticing the effect of the meal and bringing it into our energy level, um, our mental clarity, our physical stamina, and just, you know, bringing that mindful curiosity and observation and accurate labeling into our lives beyond the meal. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com. And, you know, so food combinations that I know may make me a little bit sleepy, like I save those for nights when I don't have to be anything but sleepy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so I can be mindful about my choices and and also it takes all of the, um, as we said earlier, that adversarial relationship, you know, out of our food choices because we become mindful of what it is the body really needs. What does the body need? What does the brain need? Um you know, to feel good. And then when we make choices that help the body and the brain feel good, we feel good about ourselves because we do have this kind of um, then um, intuitive, what becomes an, an almost intuitive awareness of what choices are going to be most um, in concert with what our body needs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So this seems like a good place to end, or do you want to add something else to this? I think it feels like a good place to end. Just I loved your point that mindful eating doesn't stop with the meal, <laughs> that, you know, it's really bringing that mindfulness um, into noticing the effect of the meal and bringing it into our energy level, um, our mental clarity, our physical stamina, 
and just, you know, bringing that mindful curiosity and observation and accurate labeling into our lives beyond the meal. This is part of the Active Pause podcast at activepause.com.